Well, good morning. It's so good to be here, so good to see all of you and to be worshiping together in this room. Uh, I want to start off by just sharing a little bit about yesterday. We hosted this, uh, we co-hosted with, oh, I don't know, several dozen churches, uh, this prayer vigil at City Hall yesterday in Palo Alto, and it was just amazing to have people gathered in front of the Palo Alto City Hall singing, God, you are everlasting, you are faithful God, was just incredible. Then uh, our good friend from next door, Coloma Smith, he had the closing uh, talk, and he got up and he got inspired to do an altar call there. So there on the steps of Palo Alto City Hall, he is inviting people to come to Jesus, and then brought people up. People came to faith. He, Francis Chan was there. He brought Francis back up to pray for them. Um, so everything was great, except you should ask Rob Schultz, if you see him, um, how his memory is with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we'll, just, we'll just leave it at that. We had, we had a bit of a low point, but uh, it was all in good fun. Um, so really, really neat to be gathered with other churches and to see what God was doing there. Well, when I was 15 years old, my friends in high school threw me a surprise party. It's a surprise birthday party, and there were two things that particularly made it a surprise. First of all, I wasn't expecting it. Second of all, it was six months after my birthday. So that's a really good time to throw people a surprise party because they have no idea it's coming. But even to this day, um, you know, 10 or so years later uh, or so, yeah, um, that event sticks with me, you know, and, and the, the kind of blessing that it was for, for friends to surprise me has been meaningful. And I've kind of thought back to that at different points. But I wonder, do we always like surprises? Do we always like it when we're surprised? Or do we sometimes just kind of want to know what to expect, right? We would like to expect that on our birthday we get presents. Mothers like to expect that on Mother's Day they're going to get celebrated. I like the fact that I know that my children have been preparing for months to honor me on Father's Day diligently. I mean, I, that... That fills me with joy to know how hard they're working at that, right? Right, kids? Yeah, good. I got a thumbs up. So sometimes we just want to know what's going to happen. We want to know when the good things are going to come to us. So the question we're going to be wrestling with this morning is, do we, do we like surprises or do we like to know what to expect? And as we get to our story of Joseph this morning, we're going to see Joseph's father, Jacob, calling Joseph in right at the end of Jacob's life. And he's going to do some things for Joseph and for Joseph's children that will come as a surprise. It's not something that's expected. And in fact, it's going to get a little bit of a negative reaction. So as we watch that, we're going to wonder what our reaction is when God does similar things. And we're going to ask how we respond to a surprise blessing. Now, uh, if we think for a minute about the things that we want from God, most of us probably have a list. You know, we could name off, God, I'd like to see this happen. I'd like to see that happen. Some of them maybe are generic things, like, oh, I want to stay healthy. I want to have financial security. I want to, you know, be reasonably happy. Maybe some of them are very specific things. I want to see this relationship healed or I want to pray for this person 
to come to know Christ or for this particular situation. But what happens when God does stuff in our life that we're not asking for, that we don't expect? Sometimes those might be difficult things, and sometimes they might be wonderful things, but when we don't know what's coming, sometimes we can resist a little bit. And so as we look at Jacob this morning and see what he does, his actions are going to mirror what God often does in our life. And we're going to try to figure out for ourselves what it looks like to receive surprises from God. So the story begins in Genesis 47. This is Jacob uh, calling Joseph in right near the days of his death. I'm going to read verses 28 through 31 from Genesis 47. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now we might notice something odd about this interchange. Obviously the hand under the thigh is a little bit odd. And that's actually an ancient way of taking a vow. But the thing that strikes me is how Jacob defers to his son Joseph. This language that he uses, he says, if now I have found favor in your sight. And that's typically something that somebody would say to a superior. And yet here's the father saying this to his son. And so right off the bat, we see that the power dynamics that are normally in place have been overturned. And as readers, we're a little bit off balance by that. We kind of realize that something different is going on. Now, what I want to notice in this story is the artistry of what's happening with Jacob's life. See, Jacob here is asking for something from Joseph that God has actually already promised to Jacob. If we go back to Genesis 46, God said to Jacob, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So God has told Jacob that this will happen, but here's Jacob making sure, asking his son to ensure that this happens. Now, this scene of a vow like this might remind you of another one earlier in the Old Testament. Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, had a similar scene where he asked his servant with the same kind of vow to go find a wife for Isaac, Jacob's father, from their own people. And so you have one vow that Jacob's grandfather made that resulted in Jacob's birth because Jacob's dad found his mom. 
And then you have another vow on the other end of the spectrum that occurs right before Jacob's death, both having to do with a return to the land, to the people of God. But that's not all. We hear that Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years. Well, Joseph actually lived in Canaan for 17 years also. So at the beginning of Joseph's life, he lived for 17 years in Canaan, and his father Jacob blessed him with good things. He was the favored son. Now on the other side, you have Jacob living for 17 years in Egypt, and his son Joseph blesses him with all the good things of Egypt. He is the favored father. See, good art has symmetry. It has parallelism. It balances. It all connects in the end. But there's even more. Now, if you don't like math, now would be a good time to, you know, check your phone, see if anybody's texted you. Um, I'll let you know when you can tune back in. So Bruce Waltke is an Old Testament scholar, and he observed this mathematical progression in the life of the patriarchs. All right, so Abraham lived to be 175 years. That's five times five times seven. Isaac lives to 180 years, six times six times five. Jacob to 147, that's seven times seven times three. Now, what Walke has observed is that each of the squared numbers increases by one while each of the other multipliers decreases by two. And in all cases, all of those numbers add up to 17 which is just kind of curious. Who knows if this is really something God has done. But here's Waltke's conclusion, and this is absolutely right on. The patriarchal chronologies constitute a rhetorical device expressing the profound biblical conviction that Israel's formative age was not a concatenation of haphazard incidents, but a series of events ordered according to God's grand design. Put simply, the life of the patriarchs is a work of art that God is crafting within history to show his glory. In the small groups that I lead, we always take turns sharing our life stories. And the question that we're always asking is, how is God writing our stories? The question I'd love for you to reflect on is whether you can see God's artistry in your life. Can you see God's artistry in your life? In the various ways that things have happened or decisions you've made or events have come together. Now, I've certainly seen that in my life, but as I was thinking through this, I realized I've seen this in lots of other people's lives as well. Bruce Mays is our newest pastor. He's our recovery pastor here. He began in the recovery ministry over a decade ago. God brought him here. He was trained here, developed, and now he's serving as a pastor, blessing those who blessed him. Coloma Smith, the pastor next door, is a good friend of mine. We pray together most weeks. His parents actually grew up in Jamaica listening to Ray Steadman on the radio. And then they immigrated to New York, and now here's Coloma pastoring a church right next door to Peninsula Bible Church partnering with us, a good friend of our church, and just everything comes full circle. I had coffee with one of our members this week, Bonnie Gray. Some of you probably know her. She's about to release a book talking about how God helped her through some 
really challenging stuff from her childhood, mostly through the intern program here at Peninsula Bible Church and how God used some of the pastors and some of the things that occurred here to really open her eyes and, and reintegrate her sense of self. And now she's back here sharing that story with others that they can be blessed as well. See how God's work in our lives is so beautiful? It always comes together. Now, I want to point out we're not just saying the, the cultural cliche, everything happens for a reason. What we're saying is, it's not just a reason. It's not just the universe. We're saying that everything happens by God's grand design. That there is a person who created the universe, who made everything, who is working in our life, who is unfolding the events of our lives, not as haphazard incidents, but as events orchestrated according to his grand design. Can you see that in your life? Can you see how God has done that? Well, I think Jacob experienced that. I think he understood a little bit about what God was doing in his life. So now as he comes to the end of his life, he, he secures for himself his burial place outside of the land of Egypt. But what he does next is he turns to the next generation. And he wants to bless them to carry on the promise that God has done. So the story continues in uh, chapter 48. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. So what Jacob is doing here is recounting how God has blessed him, the promises God made to him. And then what he does in kind of a curious turn of events is he adopts Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to be his own sons, taking them from Joseph and putting them in his line. In fact, not just making them his sons, but putting them above Reuben and Simeon, the oldest and second oldest, so he takes Joseph's two sons and puts them in front of the line, making them the inheritors of the double inheritance right that would be 
the right of the firstborn. What strikes me, though, is happening is that this makes things very complicated for Jacob and his family. Because we like round numbers, right? And Jacob has 12 sons. But now we ask, how many sons does Jacob have? Does he have 14 with Ephraim and Manasseh? Or does Ephraim and Manasseh take Joseph's place so he has 13? Or do they each count as like half a son so he still has 12? I mean, we, we kind of want things to just fit and make sense. And now there's all this ambiguity. And the reality is that ambiguity actually plays forward in the Old Testament. You may not realize this, but there are three or four different listings of Jacob's 12 sons, depending on how you count things. And so there's one listing in Genesis 35, there's a different listing in Numbers 1, and there's a different listing in Revelation 7 at the end of the story. See, these sons kind of come in and Sometimes you leave out Levi because he didn't get a plot of land. Sometimes you leave out Joseph. Sometimes you leave out another. But there's always 12. The artistry is there, but it's always a little bit unexpected. And I like that because sometimes I think we tend to just want God to work in a very defined way. We want everything to make sense. We want to be able to grasp it all. But this helps to remind me that it doesn't always fit our categories. There's often a little bit of something we might not expect. And so I want to invite you to think about something that's happening in your life, some event that's unfolding, and ask the question, is God surprising you? Is God surprising you in some way that you don't expect? Maybe you haven't even recognized it as God's hand. Maybe something's happening and you think it's not God because you expect God to work this way. But maybe he's doing something that you didn't quite expect. Now, sometimes the surprise blessing of God comes through grief. That's what happens here. If you notice what Jacob is doing, he says that the reason why Manasseh and Ephraim belong to him now are because he lost his wife, Rachel. And the implication is that he could have had more children by her, but he didn't. And so now he takes Ephraim and Manasseh as kind of a, a replacement. So sometimes we have to lose something to gain something. Sometimes a door closes before God opens another. There's been a lot of grief this last year. There's been a lot of loss, a lot of things that haven't gone the way we thought they should or wanted them to. Lives lost, jobs lost, security, emotional stability. But perhaps God is building something new out of that. Maybe there's a sense of something fresh being born from the grief that we've experienced. Eight years ago, uh, we found out as a church leadership that this property next door was going to go up for sale. And we'd always kind of thought that our property was missing this chunk and it would be really nice to own that. So uh, you know, the property came up and the elders prayed about it and said, we're not sure what we do with it, but it seems like maybe we should try to buy it. And we presented that opportunity to the body and all of you responded in really positive ways. We got a bunch of money pledged, we made a bid and we got overbid, which is kind of the story of real estate in the Bay Area, Right. But out of that closed door, 
what happened was that God gave us as a church a new sense that he has called us here on Middlefield Road in Palo Alto. And that we as a church were, were willing to invest in this property to see what God would do in the future. And so that started five, six years of progressive work on our property that has mostly come to a close now. Got one little project left to finish the uh, entryway and the playgrounds. And as soon as the city of Palo Alto catches up to things, we'll get that done. But now here we are with this incredible facility, just poised to see what God is going to do in our city as the pandemic comes to an end. And I hope you feel what I feel, that just an incredible sense of God's, of expectation for what he's going to do. See, we thought God might be opening one door. It wasn't that door, but out of that, something else came. God surprised us, and here we are, and I can't wait to see how God continues to surprise us. So Jacob calls Joseph, and he adopts his two sons, but then he blesses them. And in the blessing, again, Jacob does something we don't expect. We're going to read a couple different sections to see how that blessing plays out. First, it's uh, verses 8 through 10. I'll read that. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Now, if you're following along, it might seem odd. Weren't we just talking about Ephraim and Manasseh? Why is he asking, who are these? Uh, what's probably going on there is this is the beginning of some kind of formal ceremony. So it's similar to like when I might preside over a wedding, and the bride comes down the aisle, and I say, who gives this woman to be married to this man? I'm not asking because I don't know. I'm asking to initiate the ceremony. That's probably what Jacob is doing here. Who are these men? And Joseph responds with this kind of formal language, and the process of blessing has begun. In this blessing ceremony, we, we, you might hear some echoes of previous ones as well, the, the dimness of Jacob's eyes. He can't see. That, that might remind us of, of Isaac blessing his sons, where Isaac couldn't see as well. But the story continues. I'm going to read verses 15 to 16 and then jump down to 20. This is the content of the blessing. This is how Jacob chooses to bless Joseph's sons. Verse 15, And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And then down in verse 20, the blessing concludes. By you, Israel will pronounce blessings saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Now this is a really standard blessing in the Old Testament. We should not be surprised by much in the content of the blessing. Jacob is asking for uh, these boys to be connected to God, to, to know that they are 
along this line of the people who worship God and then that they might be fruitful in the earth, that they might multiply and replicate. So there's this sense of vertical connection to God and a horizontal fruitfulness on the earth. That might remind us of the first chapter of Genesis where God created man and woman in his his image and told them to be fruitful. might remind us of Jesus' words, we are to love God and love our neighbor. There's these two aspects of what it means to be faithful to God, relationship with him and fruitfulness within creation. That's really all of the Christian life is. So the blessing itself makes sense. We're, we're familiar with this kind of language. What's different is the order that Jacob places people. Listen to verses 17 through 19. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. See, what happened was Joseph brought his two sons to Jacob in the right order. And when Jacob blessed them, he crossed his hands. And he put his right hand on the younger son and his left hand on the older son so that the blessing was reversed. And when this happened, Joseph gets upset. Now, from our perspective, we've seen enough of the younger supplanting the older (laughs) that we shouldn't really be surprised. We should kind of expect this. I mean, after all, he just put Ephraim and Manasseh above Reuben and Simeon. Jacob himself was the younger, put above Esau. And so we're kind of used to this pattern that God likes to shake things up. And yet when Joseph sees it, he's not just surprised, but he's upset. In fact, the language, it displeased him. The word there is, it seemed to him to be evil or bad. And so something gets triggered within Joseph. And what does he do? That The language is actually uh, very hostile, very aggressive. Joseph wants to fix it. He grabs his father's hands and tries to move it. And the father very gently says, I know, but this is the way that I want it to be. The question that I have is, do I know that feeling? That feeling within Joseph of, hey, hey, I thought it was going to go this way, and you're doing it that way. And something just gets stirred within me, and I want to fix it. I want to make it back to the way that I think it ought to be. God, I thought you were going to bring this about, not that about. And can can we please find a way to fix this situation? And sometimes we need to hear God's voice saying, I know. I know, but this is my will. God's work is often surprising in our lives. And sometimes that upsets us. Sometimes it may even seem evil to us. But I think he gently invites us to receive that surprise. To receive God's surprise. 
In a sense, the whole gospel, the scandal of the gospel is exactly this. That we think that the older son should get the blessing. And we think that if we work hard enough and we do what we're supposed to do, then God will favor us. We like to know what to expect. We like to follow the rules and get our reward. And yet God says, it's not the way it works. It's by grace. It's by forgiveness. It's by God's choice. The truth is our our culture that we live in lives by a set of rules. We like to understand, do this and this will happen. Our culture can be very legalistic. There are things you're supposed to do in our culture. There are things you're supposed to say, things you're supposed to think. And if you are outside of that line, you get canceled. And there's no redemption. There's no forgiveness. There's no options. There's one way to be. But God says, I choose the younger. And I forgive you when you cross the line. See, Jacob's actions here are a picture of grace, of the way God welcomes us in, even when we don't deserve it. We should should know by now that God's plans often violate our expectations. One of my favorite professors in seminary had this line that he would say over and over again, so all of his students could basically repeat it verbatim but it's been a while, so I'm going to read it. He said, uh, what God has done in the past is both a model and a promise for what he's going to do in the future, but he is too creative to do the same thing twice. It always looks a bit different. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise for what he's going to do in the future, but he always changes it around. He always adds a little bit of novelty, something unique. Because God likes to keep us on our toes, I think. And the challenge for us then is to receive those things that we don't expect. Sometimes they're hard things. Sometimes they're good things. Sometimes they're hard things that become good things. But to just approach God open-handed and let him give us what it is that he wants to give us. And not to have our own expectations or demands color what we're willing to accept from God's hands. As I was writing this, it occurred to me that this is actually one of the things I most respect about Scott Grant, one of our other pastors. I've been in a lot of meetings with Scott, thinking through different options, trying to make decisions. And, you know, he asks questions and goes through things, but almost always at the end, he'll say, let's just do it and see what God does. Let's find out what God has for us here. And it's this great just kind of open hand, let's walk forward and see what God has for us in this situation. But I found that attitude can often be rare. We sometimes like to just have a little more control over how things are going to be. We want to manufacture things a little bit harder. So what does it take for us to just open ourselves and receive the surprise that God might have for us? I want to invite the band back up as we close. And uh, I want to think again about this surprise party that my friends threw me when I was 15 years old and how that continues to resonate in my heart, that kind of just blessing that it gave me. 
And this blessing that Jacob gives to Ephraim and to Manasseh continues to resonate throughout Scripture. It sets up this pattern of how God blesses. Eventually, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh will rebel against God. They will turn out to be some of the worst tribes. They'll be exiled to Assyria. But out of that story will come the surprise of the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who will come and change everything. This is my last Sunday for a couple months. I'm heading out on sabbatical this week. Uh, so I would cover your prayers for that time. I'm planning a few things for the next few months. Uh, I'm going to do some reading, some reflection, uh, some resting. I expect to be refreshed, renewed, restored. See the pattern here? So if you have any other suggestions that begin with R, let me know, and I will consider adding it to my list of things to do on my sabbatical. But uh, it's a really good time, I think, to step away because I have this sense that we are entering a new season as a church, that with the pandemic coming to a close, with our city opening up, that God has plans for us here. And I'm excited to take a step back and to say, what is it, God, that you want to surprise us with? To think about how God's worked in my life and how he's going to work through us. And I'm excited to come back in August and to join back with you and to see how God's going to move in our city, and our area. So pray for me, and uh, I will look forward to seeing you again when I return in August. But for now, uh, I want to encourage us to think about how God might be doing more than we expect. And I want to read this from Ephesians and then pray for us. As Ephesians 3, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God, thank you that your work in our life, that your plans are bigger than what we can expect. That you're not going to just do what we think you're going to do, but you're going to do what you know has to be done that those things come as a surprise to us, but ultimately they allow us to rest in your work and just go along for the ride. I pray that you would give us a sense of how you're doing that in our life. And I pray that you would open our hearts to receive the blessings that you have for us. In the name of Jesus Christ. Gracious to you, the Lord turn in.